um, and we'll say the, the prayer of the first hour. Uh, o Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may behold the unapproachable light and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments by the intercessions of thine all immaculate mother and of all thy saints. Amen. Amen. We're continuing here with the life of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. And um, we, last time we were discussing um, the relationship between the Theotokos and the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which of course in ancient Judaism, there was only one temple. Uh, the Jews uh, gathered in synagogues in their own towns and villages, synagogi, uh, Synagogue is a Greek word, which which is synagogi, which means a gathering. Um, analogous to the word ecclesia, which means assembly. Uh, but they only had one temple. There was only one sacrifice that happened in Jerusalem. Uh, this was uh, chapter three in our book, and um, the the chapter three is perhaps is a very interesting chapter, um, especially in its discussion of the temple itself. And there are two diagrams, one on page 36 and one on page 38. Page 36, uh, we see the diagram of Solomon's temple. And then on page 38, we see the diagram of Herod's temple. Herod's temple is the temple that was in existence um, during the uh, life of our Lord. Um, Solomon's temple is the, the first temple. Um, uh, and uh, which, of course, was uh, when, when the Israelites were carried away, when the Israelites and the Judeans, the two kingdoms, uh, within a few decades of each other, were carried away into exile. The temple in Jerusalem was abandoned and uh, fell into, of course, raided and sacked and then abandoned. Um, and then, of course, it was refounded when the Jews were allowed to go back to uh, their ancestral land uh, by the Persian king Cyrus the Great, um, and that is the inaugural. So that's in the 500s BC, and uh, thus with the refounding of the temple, we have what's called Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism uh, organized around the rebuilt temple, in other words. But Herod, in his own time. Um, around the year 20 BC, um, decided that he was going to renovate the whole thing and make it more um, Hellenistic in its form, uh, incorporate ancient Greek architecture into it, because of course at the time um, there was the Roman Empire politically, but culturally throughout the Eastern Mediterranean and throughout the Mediterranean actually itself, on both sides of the Mediterranean, Greek culture uh, had basically uh, basically became the culture of the cities, the urban culture. Um, and so Herod basically dismantled the second temple and rebuilt it. Um, and thus we have the second temple as it's described on page 38, uh, uh, rebuilt by Herod. Um, in the rebuilding of the temple, in the New Testament, there are references to the building of the temple especially when our Lord says that he, the temple will be uh, destroyed and then three days later will be rebuilt. He was talking about his body. 
And the Jews, of course, didn't understand what he was talking about and thought that he was talking about the actual temple, the one in Jerusalem, the physical building. And he said, what are you talking about? This took decades to actually complete. And so there are references to the construction. It was kind of a proverbial construction. It was, in fact, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, and the description here that we have uh, is a wonderful description of all the different chambers and, and um, cloisters and uh, colonnades and gates um, connected to Herod's temple. Um, and the building of the temple also coincides with the life of the Virgin. On page 37, uh, it says at the age of three years and two and one half months, the young Virgin Mary in all likelihood entered sometime shortly after the completion of the central part of the building, that is sometime between 17 and 16 BC. So uh, the Virgin entered the renovated temple, which archeologists call the Herod, Herod's temple. Um, and uh, probably entered the central part of the building, which is the part that, of course, that was finished first. Um, as interesting as all of this is, this whole description of the temple and the various parts and the liturgics and even the, uh, the garments of the high priests, all of that, of course, all of that description um, is subordinated to one particular point that all of those things prefigured the Theotokos, that the mother of God was um, her identity and her calling and her deeds um, uh, were all encoded, so to speak, in, this, uh, in these elaborate rituals, especially in these rooms and these veils and the containers, um, the sacred vessels, and the theological term for this encoding is called prefiguration. Of course, we know that the whole Old Testament is full of prefigurations of our Lord. Um, uh, the, his identity and his mission are all encoded in the ritual. But since his identity and his mission are encoded in the ritual and even in the history of Israel, um, it's also the case that his mother's identity and mission are encoded. Uh, especially when it comes to the temple, and as I said, the spaces of the temple uh, and the vessels, because the one theme that's connected to the Theotokos here, that connects Theotokos to the temple, is the space that contains God, right? The, the, the space that contains God. Incidentally, uh, there's also, uh, there, our author also describes um, Mosaics from a church in Constantinople, which of course was built many centuries uh, after Herod's temple. Uh, probably the mosaics themselves are from the uh, late 13th, early 14th century, so 1200 years later. Uh, nonetheless, um, uh, we have this, this detailed portraits and, and, and depictions of various scenes from the life of the Theotokos, which help us understand a few things about, about who she is and her calling and a connection to the history of her people. Um, but the, that monastery is called the Monastery of Chora. And there is a portrait of the Theotokos um, in, the main, in the nave of the church to the left, as you're looking at the sanctuary, to the left of the sanctuary, that is um, uh, uh, inscribed 
Ihora tuahoritu, the space of the uncontainable one, or the, perhaps the the container of the uncontainable one. Um, and uh, interestingly, also uh, the entrance to the nave, the door that leads to the nave, to the main part of the church in the monastery of Hora, there is a portrait of our Lord right above the door um, that has the inscription Ihora ton zondon. The, the, the space of the living or the land of the living. And then when you get into the interior, you get right before you enter the sanctuary, you have to the left, the uh, icon of the Theotokos, which has the land of the, the space of the uncontainable one. So um, this concept of space, of course, we're talking, why, why space? Because her body contained the uncontainable God. Um, so this why there's a section here, um, on page 45, that talks about the sacred vessels. Liturgical vessels from the Old Testament are shown as prefigurative types of the Virgin Mother in both iconography and hymnology. A prefigurative type. Um, the word type does not mean what it, in this context, does not mean what it usually means, uh, like a kind of thing. Um, or... Uh, a letter, let's say, on a, on a typewriter, right? Uh, although the typewriter is closer to the original meaning, uh, to, to the meaning here. The word type um, comes from the metaphor of the stamp, right? The stamp leaves, in Greek, we say leaves a typos, an impression. An impression, and it's a copy of the stamp itself, um, which in Greek is called the archetypon the archetype in English. So you have an archetype and a type. So when we say that the, the liturgical vessels of the Old Testament are prefigurative types, what we're saying is that they are, uh, they're like the impression of a stamp. The impression presupposes the stamp. In fact, the impression um, points to the stamp, to, to the impress, in other words. Um, and, and whoever holds the impress, of course, has the authority, right? And, uh, um, but the point is that the, the type presupposes the archetype. And so everything we see in the Old Testament is a type, an impression of an archetype that comes, that reveals itself in the New Testament. And these vessels are all prefigurative types, prefigurative impressions. Um, of the Theotokos. And of course, hymnography uh, is rich with descriptions of these prefigurative types. Um, right? Um, of course, the Holy of Holies is a prefigurative type of Theotokos, the Ark of the Covenant, which according to our, I was surprised, actually, I read it in this book, I hadn't read it anywhere else, um, that it, when our uh, when Our Lady was in the temple, um, the Holy of Holies was, was empty because the Ark of the Covenant had been taken away centuries before and hidden and never found and presumably still exists hidden in the mountains of Judea um, uh, and, and uh, protected by, the, by, by God who will perhaps when he considers it the right time will reveal it, perhaps won't reveal it, and only after the end of time, 
after his second coming will it be revealed. But nonetheless, as our author indicates, it doesn't matter because all of that, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, were all prefigurative types of the Theotokos. So the Theot actually, it might be appropriate that those were missing because they made room for the actual, for the archetype, for their original model. Um, and we noted last time that um, the Theotokos, of course, is also indicated in these uh, this relationship between the Theotokos and these liturgical vessels and the, the, these liturgical spaces of the Old Testament are indicated by her portraits, um, uh, portraiture that's, uh, that, it, that exists around those spaces and on those objects. Iconographers centuries later, of course, did that because they were aware of the church's interpretation of those vessels. On page 51, there's a discussion well, there's a, there's a subsection entitled The Living Bridal Chamber of God the Word. The Living Bridal Chamber. Why is the Theotokos called the Bridal Chamber? Um, there is a, uh, both in scripture and in the uh, poetic tradition of the church, the poetry of the church, the hymnology, um, we have a nuptial imagery. Imagery, in other words, taken from a wedding. And um, there's a specific meaning to this. The specific meaning is that um, the Theotokos is the bridal chamber. In other words, the bedroom where the bride and the groom go after their wedding feast. That's called the bridal chamber. Um, where humanity united with, well, maybe say it the other way around where divinity united itself with humanity, right? That we're talking about the, the union of the two natures in Christ, the perfect union between the divine nature and the human nature were accomplished in the womb of the Theotokos. And as we know, uh, the, we know that God, uh, in, in the interpretation of the fathers uh, of scriptural texts like the Song of Songs, uh, God is the, the lover of humanity, right? Uh, God is the uh, husband of humanity, and humanity is the bride. More specifically, the church, which is that section of humanity that has, that has made themselves, that has prepared itself for union with God, Right, the church is not the the church. You should know it's not the buildings, it's not the administrative hierarchy, it's not just the bishops, it's not just the synods, it's all the human beings gathered, organized hierarchically, of course, according to rank, according to uh, also according to their virtues. Um, is the, the the church are primarily the human beings that assemble together praise God, to listen to his word, and to commune with him. That is to unite themselves with him. And thus, this is why we say the church is the bride of Christ. The church is humanity, is that part of humanity that's uniting with God. God is the groom, the church is the bride. But this union was first worked in the womb of the Theotokos, the, the perfect union between uh, the divine nature and the human nature brought together 
in the one person, the one hypostasis of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we say, we know he is uh, one person in two natures. Now, there were heretics that said different things. I'm not going to go into those heresies. But the teaching of the church is that our Lord uh, is one person in two natures. Pre-eternally God, and a moment in time became a man. His divine nature, of course, is pre-eternal, beyond time and space. His divine personhood is pre-eternal, beyond time and space. Right? As the Logos, he always was and always is and always will be. But in a moment in time, the Logos, the person of the Logos, with his divine nature, acquired also a human nature. And this is a great mystery. It goes against... Um, common logic why would the greater unite with the lesser well the why was revealed love divine love uh, unbounded love selfless love this is why um, if the muslims or the jews were right which they're not right well let me say it another way because i don't want to scandalize anyone the muslim god and the jewish god modern Jewish God, not the ancient, the, the God of the modern Jews, um, is a completely different conception, is a completely different God. Non-existent. Thank God, non-existent. Because these, God, these conceptions of God do not allow him to become a human being. The Muslims and the Jews do not think that God is capable of becoming a human being. So that's a completely different God than ours, who not only is capable because he's omnipotent, but he is willing because he's omnibenevolent. He's all love. So out of this infinite love, he united himself with us in the womb of the Theotokos, acquiring human nature from the Theotokos and uh, worked this mystical union. This is why she's called the living bridal chamber of God, the word. Um, the last part of uh, chapter 3 on page 52 says, The preordained queen of all has opened the kingdom of heaven unto us. And there's a quote that says that she was forechosen from all generations to be the dwelling place of Christ, the master and God of all. There are two points here, at least two points that we can talk about from with that quote. First, she was forechosen, meaning that God knew and prepared Knew, knew her from before time and prepared. We said last time, the, even the physical universe was prepared for her. The nation of Israel was prepared for her so that she could be born because from her would be born the word of God in the flesh. Uh, and so um, she was, so that that's one part of this for chosen. The second point is that we shouldn't believe, we shouldn't understand this to mean that the Theotokos had no role, that she was predestined. Pre, it was predetermined that she would be um, the mother of Christ, the mother of God. This is not the case. It, it wasn't determined by God that she would be the one. God, of course, knew that she would be the one and prepared everything for her. But it was of her own free will, which we'll read later. That she, that she obeyed God, that she joined her will to God's will. 
And as we'll talk about today, she had been praying for this type of a solution her, ent- her entire life up to, that, up to the point of the Annunciation, for the redemption of humanity. Right? So she had wanted something like this to happen. She, of course, no one, not even the, the highest ranking Cheruvim uh, uh, and the Seraphim uh, imagined that God would become a man like that. The Theotokos, uh, perhaps it had, uh, just, like to the, just like with the prophets, aspects of this had been revealed to them, but the full picture hadn't. Um, and so she just wanted some kind of resolution, some kind of redemption for humanity, uh, which she pitied. Um, and, and so when the archangel was sent to her with a message that, that, that shocked all of creation, um, all the angels were, were shocked by this. They had been shocked by the Theotokos before because they, they didn't understand how she could enter the Holy of Holies. But this was even bigger. This, is, this shocks everyone to this day when they learn, when they realize what exactly happened at the Annunciation. So she wasn't forechosen in the sense of predetermined or predestined to do this because her will was part of uh, our salvation, her free choice. Um, she was forechosen in the sense that God knew that she would say yes and prepared the way for her to say yes. Um, chapter four, which is the, the chapter four, chapter five of the two chapters we're supposed to discuss today. Um, the virgin growing up in the temple. Um, and so we know that the virgin spent time in the Holy of Holies, which is, of course, something that's very, um, it, it's unprecedented. No one, I mean, the high priest was, only went there at certain times of the year. Uh, and yet the Theotokos was allowed um, to, to reside in there. She didn't live the entire time in there. She was able to go in there and pray. Um, because as uh, St. John Maksumovich points out, as it's noted on page 53, uh, she's, uh, it says, Mary was settled in the quarters of, for virgins, which existed in the temple. The temple had many sections. Uh, and so there, were, there was a section for young, young girls that had been dedicated to the service of God. And that's where she lived. That's where her actual uh, day, daily quarters were, her, her bedroom and such. Um, but she spent so much time in prayer in the Holy of Holies that one might say that she lived in it. Right? So she, that, that's where she spent most of her time. She desired to fulfill the commandment of God, ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, which is in Leviticus 19. This is a very important verse in Scripture, uh, one of the most important verses in Scripture, uh, because this is the command for us to become saints. It, it shows us what our purpose is. And of course, the Holy Prophet Moses had re- revealed our purpose in Genesis when he said that God created man in his image and likeness, which means that he created man in his image, what we have inwardly and the relationship between our soul and our body, uh, but also the, the different parts of our soul, are all icons, portraits of God, of the Holy Trinity. 
Um, and also we can say that being incarnate spirits, human beings are also portraits of the, uh, of, of God uh, in the way that he relates to creation because God creates the world and sustains it. Our soul doesn't create our body, but it sustains our body. Uh, and so St. Gregory Palamas says that we are actually image of, images of God to a greater degree than the angels are, although the angels are much holier than us. They've attained much higher um, levels of holiness. Um, the, uh, uh, as far as our nature is concerned, we are much cl clearer or much more distinct uh, portraits of God than the angels are who just have soul. They're, they're just a soul. They're just a spirit. They don't, they don't have a body because our soul sustains a body, gives life to a body. That's an image of God. But also we're images of Christ. We, uh, the, Adam anticipated uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Adam anticipated uh, the word becoming flesh. Um, and so he's old Adam and Christ is new Adam, but also Christ is Adam's, the old Adam's archetype. Um, so the, all these things, of course, are uh, concentrated in the very, very, concise language of the holy prophet Moses in the book of Genesis. And the likeness, the likeness is what we're, attain, what we're called to attain, which in Leviticus is called holiness. The likeness of God is God's holiness. So Adam and Eve were, were created right at that boundary, right at the beginning of the divine likeness, because the divine likeness actually has no end. God couldn't pre-program them, so to speak, to attain the divine likeness because the divine likeness, you can only grow in the divine likeness by using your free will because the free will is also part of the divine image. We have to choose. We have to freely do it because God is free. Freedom is a divine attribute. Our freedom is not absolute freedom. God, only God has absolute freedom and infinite power. Our freedom is constrained right, by our physicality, by, our, by time and space, so on and so forth. But nonetheless, more important than an absolute freedom is our ethical freedom, our, our ability to choose between good and evil. And we have to, by choosing good consistently, we grow in the divine likeness. But in Leviticus, it's called holy. And so Saint, uh, the Holy Prophet Moses in Genesis um, gives us the baseline, right? But then in Leviticus, he gives us the command. We have a starting point in the command. We're created this way. We're created for the likeness. And now we get the command. Attain the likeness. Ye shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Because after all, he's our archetype. Right? We are portraits of him of the word of God and of the entire Holy Trinity in, in, in different ways. Uh, and the, we read this, perhaps we've read this before and we gloss over it and it doesn't sink in or we think that, yeah, it pertains to the saints, but not to me. It pertains to us, but the Theotokos, the Theotokos really took this seriously. This was, so, this was something that really made, left a mark on her heart because she had a pure heart 
because she had a pure heart, she was open to this. She was open both to the commands of God because she feared God. And also her pure heart also allowed her to have clear thought. Clear thought, clarity of thought, the ability to, to, to judge correctly. And judging correctly, uh, sorry, someone <laughs> sent me a text just now asking about Father Stephen. I'll write him later. Um, judging correctly is um, uh, a function of our purity. We think that judging correctly is a function of logic. Logic certainly is a tool. It's an important tool that God gave us. Logic comes from our, the, the word logic comes from the Greek word logos. So logiki is the skill of using our logos, right? Our word, but our reason, our rationality. Those are our gifts and tools we're supposed to use. But if, our, if we're impure, if our mind is darkened, by passions, we cannot judge correctly. We cannot come to correct conclusions, not just about ourselves. That's true because when our mind is darkened, we're in delusion about ourselves. But also, we're in delusion about the world. We come to false conclusions about others around us, and we come to farce, uh, false uh, conclusions um, about the physical world itself impartial conclusions and this is the condition in which most of philosophy human philosophy most of the natural sciences most of the social sciences and everything that's going on in academia and being written online and in print and spoken between people over the centuries most of it is falls under this category of delusion partial truths but delusional uh, discourse that um, stems from a darkened mind. That's why that's why reading the Holy Fathers is so important, and reading Scripture is so important because these are the few people that we know who left us testimony and their texts whose minds were illumined; they weren't darkened. Um, and so the Theotokos had correct judgment because she had an illumined mind. And so ye shall be holy, for I I, the Lord your God, am holy, is basically the foundation of the life of, our Theotokos, of the Theotokos. Um, St. Ambrose says she was a stranger to any fall into sin, but not a stranger to sinful temptations. God alone is without sin. Um, and, and prior to that, there's the quote from uh, Bishop Ignatios, uh, Ignati uh, Briancaninov, who says, Despite the righteousness and the purity of life which the Mother of God led, sin and eternal death manifested their presence in her. They could not but be manifested, such as the precise and faithful teaching of the Orthodox Church concerning the Virgin with relation to fallen nature and death. Uh, this does not mean, so St. Uh, Ignatius, he's actually a saint, um, is not contradicting St. Ambrose. Um, St. Ignatius is saying that the Theotokos had a fallen nature just like us. 
and and having a fallen nature, she was subject to death. And because she was subject to death, it was possible for her to sin. And St. Ambrose clarifies that she was tempted, just like we're tempted. She had temptations. But the glory of the Theotokos is that she handled those temptations correctly. Almost everyone else, with the exception of our Lord, uh, either were not consistent in the way we handle our temptations, or we completely fail when these temptations happen. Right? And, and the worst is when people think that those temptations are part of themselves. Part of themselves. That's when they get possessed by demons. That the temptation, that the logismos, the thought, uh, is their identity. It's their essence. But we Orthodox Christians know that the thoughts that the demons throw to us, throw at us, are not us. They're not ours. They're demonic. There are thoughts that do arise from our own mind and from our own thoughts, from our own heart. Um, those do exist as well. Um, but our passions of our, are of demonic inspiration. And so we have to understand that. And the Theotokos knew that these evil thoughts, that the demons, she discerned the method of the demons and took proper measure to stop their influence in her own heart. And so she was subject to death. She could sin, but she, and she had temptations, but she re repelled and repulsed the temptations. Interestingly, at the bottom of 53, we have a daily schedule of the Theotokos. Um, well, the part right before I talk about the schedule, there's an interesting paragraph here. I want to talk about it right above it. Apocryphal sources, meaning the gospel, um, the proto-evangelium of, um, of James, um, and a few other Orthodox apocryphal um, texts that are not part of scripture, but they are part of Orthodox tradition, say that she was constant in prayer and her appearance was beautiful and glorious. Hardly anyone could look into her face. She occupied herself with woolwork. Hardly anyone could look into her face. And there's another description of her beauty. Um, at the end of this chapter on page 59, St. Gregory Palamas praises Mary, this is on page 59, in superlative terms, writing, Today a new world and a wonderful paradise have appeared. In it and from it the new Adam is born to reform the old Adam and renew the whole world. God has kept this virgin for himself before all ages. He chose her from among all generations and bestowed on her grace higher than that given to all others, making her, before her wondrous childbirth, the saint of saints, giving her the honor of his own house in the Holy of Holies, wishing to create an image of absolute beauty and to manifest clearly to angels and to men the power of his art. God made Mary truly all beautiful, he made of her a blend of all divine, angelic, and human perfection, a sublime beauty embellishing the two-thirds, sorry, the two worlds, rising from earth to heaven and surpassing 
even this ladder. The beauty of the Theotokos, the, the concept of beauty itself is a very difficult topic. Um, it's, it's difficult, but it's worthwhile. Uh, many philosophers have spilled a lot of ink trying to figure out what exactly beauty is. Uh, the interesting thing is that most people can recognize it. Fortunately today though, but they can't define it. Unfortunately today though, most people have a hard time recognizing it. And we are, um, we're very confused about what is beautiful. And the Holy Fathers teach us that the source of beauty is God. He is the, he is the beautiful one himself. Uh, and to the extent that human beings are beautiful, they are beautiful as images of God, as portraits of God. The divine image, but especially the divine likeness. Because let's say the divine image is kind of static. It's the outline. It's the static outline. Um, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically here, not literally. So they can understand um, the relationship between the image and the likeness. The image is kind of like the static outline of a sketch. The likeness, however, is the color and the activity. In a regular portrait, we just have color. But with us, we have both the color and the activity. The original, the, the very life force of our archetype himself pours through us, where it can, if we prepare ourselves properly. And so that is human beauty. Now, the Theotokos was, all, was beautiful both as an individual in her physical appearance, but also in her, um, in her activity, in her inward activity, first and foremost, and then in her outward demeanor. And it says that few people could ever look into her face. Her type of beauty was not the type of beauty that actually inspires, unfortunately, among impassioned people, this is why beauty has to be protected and covered. Uh, among impassioned people, beauty sometimes inspires, often, most of the time, actually, among impassioned people, lust. However, with the Theotokos and with the Lord, with our Lord Jesus Christ, their beauty actually inspired awe, because it was a sublime beauty. It was the deep beauty. It was the beauty of Adam and Eve, but magnified. Uh, intensified the Theotokos through her virtues and of course Christ through his divinity um, and St. Gregory Palamas has this very beautiful uh, description here how she's a blend of all divine angelic and human perfection right we're talking about a dynamic perfection perfection of her virtues but also she was transparent transparent to the operations and activities of the divine of the holy spirit right the the her her soul and her body were conveying constantly the activity the operations the grace of the holy spirit and this is why he says that um a sublime beauty she had a sublime beauty embellishing the two worlds rising from earth to heaven and surpassing even heaven, because of course God is above heaven. God is greater than heaven. 
But back to page 53, we have an interesting schedule for the Theotokos when she was a young woman. From the morning until 9 a.m., meaning from dawn. Sometimes for some of us, the morning starts at 9 a.m. But we're talking here, ancient people in particular arose um, before dawn. Certainly they strove to wake up at dawn. So from dawn until 9 a.m., she remained in prayer. And then from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., she was occupied with her weaving, and she was particularly skilled at weaving. And from 3, it says, she again applied herself to prayer. She did not retire from praying until the appearance of the angel of the Lord after the ninth hour, which is approximately around 3 p.m., from whose hand she received food. Thus she refreshed herself only once daily with that food brought by the archangel. Right, so she ate once a day, and she ate from this heavenly mana, uh, this uh, heavenly food. Um, the rest of this section here talks about how she um, she lived, um, her outward virtues, um, and her inward virtues. <clears throat> she was... Um, humble, um, uh, she, she surpassed everyone in her prayers and her praises of God and individuals. No one was more lowly in humility, nor more elegant in singing, or more perfect in all the virtues, it says. Um, she was adorned with all virtue and manifested an example of extraordinarily pure life, of an extraordinarily pure life. Submissive and obedient to all, she offended no one as was friendly to all. She never said a crude word to anyone and did not allow, and did not allow any unclean thought. All of the above is possible because of this last part, because she did not allow an unclean thought in her mind. We know that the Holy Father has actually described how we're tempted, right? Uh, the first step is the assault. First step of temptation is called the assault of the prosvoli. And the assault, the, the thought comes and it manifests itself, let's say, flashes in front of our, our mind's eye. And at that point, we have the ability to repel, to repel it, to turn away from it. But sometimes it's, uh, the demons are very persistent and we have to turn to prayer. Um, and so when you repel this thought at that moment, it's not a sin at all. Um, uh, it's when you start entertaining a thought that it starts to become a sin. So uh, the Theotokos was tempted in this way. Demons did try to attack her, um, but she repelled their assaults and did not entertain their thoughts. She was, so she never allowed any unclean thought to enter into her heart, that is to entertain it, to think about it, to to. Uh, meditate on it or mull it over or, or whatever. Um, she was steadfast, immovable, unchangeable, and daily advanced to perfection. None saw Mary ever angry, nor heard her speak evil. All of her conversations were full of grace. She was ever occupied in prayer and in searching the law. She was anxious also about her companions. She herself feared 
to even inadvertently offend or appear proud before her peers. Mary blessed God without interruption um, and would always say, thanks be to God, glory be to God, which is an interesting point that the author makes. It's the Virgin that began this custom among the people of God to glorify God in this way. Um, then this second half on page 55, this discussion of St. Gregory Palamas is very important because St. Gregory Palamas teaches that the Theotokos was the first Hesychast. What is a Hesychast? A Hesychast is a monk or a nun, but it doesn't have to be just a monk or a nun. could be any Christian, Orthodox Christian. But of course, monks and nuns live the Hesychastic life. They live in Isichia. Um, the Theotokos was the first Hesychast. That, that is, what is a Hesychast? Someone who detaches their mind from the world. And then that's, that's Isichia itself, detachment from the world. Often the detachment is physical, but it doesn't have to be just physical. Uh, most of the saints, for most of the saints, or many of the saints, it was physical. They went to the desert, or they went to the mountains, or to the forest. They even left their monasteries and lived with the blessing, obviously, outside of their monasteries, in, in skeets, or in huts, or in caves, to get away from all the distractions of, of other human beings. Uh, and they dedicate themselves to unceasing prayer. What St. Gregory says is that the Virgin was the first to take it upon herself to pray unceasingly. Later, St. Paul will tell us to pray unceasingly. But this is something that the early Christians learned from the Theotokos, how to pray unceasingly. According to St. Gregory, her asceticism therein did not lead her to come to an, to an understanding of the grace received in the time of her conception, but to learn more of the nature of the sins of Adam. Right when she heard in the temple the readings, uh, Adam, Adam's fall, the fall of Eve, what happened to human beings. It says she was filled with pity for people who were brought to ruin and condemnation through disobedience. She resolved to have her heart, mind, and soul dwell on God and endeavored to remain attentive and to struggle in prayer. And the content of this prayer was for the redemption of humanity. And, and St. Gregory suggests in his homily that it's this prayer, this unceasing, attentive prayer that was going on inside the Theotokos that actually attracted God and brought God inside her. This is what God had seen from the beginning. The Theotokos would be someone who would dedicate herself to this type of activity. This is what it means that she was forechosen she would dedicate that he had prepared everything for this person who would choose this way of life. Abiding in prayer day and night and maintaining silence. In other words, she was, her mind was completely detached from worldly things. She rose above all creation. The all Holy Virgin contemplated God's glory more fully than did Moses for the Jews. Moses is everything. He's the beginning of all things, of all wisdom, of all grace. The, the holiest of the prophets, and yet the Theotokos was uh, granted uh, the, the grace of contemplating God's glory more fully than Moses. And communed of divine grace in such a way that defies words and even reason, reason 
This is why the Holy Fathers call her a luminous cloud, right? The living water. Um, we're running out of time here. Um, what I want to um, move forward to the to chapter five, the Virgin comes of age, um, and let's talk about um, the Virgin's vow. So Our Lady vowed to remain a virgin. And this is a very important, um, I won't say innovation, but an inauguration is more like it. Because for the Jews, there were a few women that had never married. There were a few women that were, uh, had remained virgins. Uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, it's noted, uh, taught that Moses' sister, Miriam, was a virgin and prefigured the Theotokos. Um, although there's some debate about that, uh, there is, uh, as, as the book points out, as Josephus says that she was actually married. Um, but what St. Gregory says about the value of virginity is valid. Probably St. Gregory is right on this question that, in fact, Miriam was a virgin, but it was very unusual among uh, Jewish women to remain virgins, that is to remain single um, and never have a relationship with a man. There were a few Jewish men that did this. Uh, Elias, the holy prophet Elias uh, is perhaps the most uh, prominent. Um, but among Christians, it was very common. And this is one of the things that got Christians in trouble in the ancient world, because the Greeks and the Romans had similar attitudes. Women, young women, were to obey their fathers and marry the man that their father chose for them. That's the Roman view, that's the Greek view, that's the Jewish view. Um, and because it was their duty, in the Greek view, it was the duty of the woman to her polis, to her city, to have children. Right? Because the beginning of children, the, pro the propagation of, of, the, of the human race, in particular of the, of the citizenry of the city, is important for the city's extension into the future. And for the Jews, that's true, but also the Jews were expecting the Messiah. And so every woman thought it was her duty to be married because she might be the mother of the Messiah. The, in the paradox is that the actual mother of Messiah chose virginity. Um, and among the Christians... Virginity was a very high way, was a very considered to be a very high calling. St. Paul talks about this, um, where, where he says that if, if one's called to be a virgin, one should remain a virgin. Um, why is virginity so important? Well, first of all, virginity um, is perhaps the most philosophical, well, in order to be truly virginal, both inwardly and outwardly, it takes a tremendous amount of attention, inward attention, self-knowledge, uh, self-control, sophrosini in Greek. Um, and uh, so to that extent, it's a very philosophical way of life. It's perhaps the most philosophical way of life. Um, on the other hand, it's also the way of life that corresponds to uh, both the life of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the life of the age to come, as well as the life of the angels. 
because in the Garden of Eden, um, even though Adam and Eve had the command, the commandment uh, to be fruitful and to multiply, they hadn't come together. Um, and uh, human nature, although the Holy Fathers teach that God created us um, in a way that provided for the fall, not provided in the bad sense of making it possible, but uh, since God knew ahead of time that we were going to fall, he equipped us with everything that we needed in order to deal with the fall. And thus our, that, that's why our bodies are related to the bodies of, other, of animals. And human sexuality is uh, analogous and closely related to animal sexuality, right? Uh, in, in the physiology, right, of reproduction and so on and so forth. Um, we know that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they had a different relationship to their body. They didn't have passions. They had a different relationship. To their, in fact, their body, says St. Gregory Palamas, was, wasn't very much apparent to them. In the same way, he says that our soul isn't that apparent to us right now because it's been swallowed up by the body. In, in the Garden of Eden, the soul had actually swallowed up the body, and the body was barely apparent. And also because they were right at the beginning step of the, of the divine likeness, the, the, the glory and the grace of God, their bodies were transparent to the glory and grace of God. They didn't, they didn't need clothing for that reason. And God's commandment for them to be fruitful and multiply in the Garden of Eden, whatever that meant, we don't know exactly what it meant. But what we do know is that it, does, it did not include the passions that we today associate with human sexuality, that are, that are implanted in human sexuality. Those are all post-fall. And so human sexuality, the way that every single human being that was born since Adam and Eve knows it, that is a consequence of the fall. It's animalistic. It's not bad because God implanted it in us to provide for the human race. But it's, it's, it reminds us of the fall. And so virginity transcends this. Virginity, in that sense, is a return back to the Garden of Eden, but it's also looking forward to the, to the life of the age to come in which our bodies will be restored to their ancient glory. The way they were, the way the bodies of Adam and Eve were in Eden. And of course, the, the purpose of sexuality will have completely been eclipsed uh, in the life of the age to come because Everyone that will have been born, that would that everyone that um, is to be born will have been born by that moment, by that time. Um, and so this is why virginity is is a very high calling, and it transcends the limitations of our nature, transcends the the our fallen nature. And so our Theotokos understood this, and chose this way of life. Um, and she was pressured to marry. The reason why she was pressured, well, there's the custom of women marrying, of course, which is part of the pressure. The other was that uh, it's revealed on page uh, 63, one of the priests, when the priests were discussing her case, because they, they were trying to get the young women out of the temple before they reached puberty. Because in the Judaic law, of course, when, when puberty comes, women start having menstrual cycles. And in the Judaic law, that's a sign of impurity. Um, and so they didn't want anyone in the temple, any woman in the temple, 
uh, with that going on. So they wanted to get him all out. The Theotokos, of course, uh, objected, actually. Um, but this is a holy type of disobedience. It wasn't disobedience out of pride, but a disobedience in submission to what she understood to be her calling, to be a virgin. Behold, it says on page 63, Mary is of age. What shall we do with her? for fear lest the holy place of the Lord of our God be defiled. That's a reference to what happens to all women um, when they reach puberty. Um, and so, but the problem that the priests had was that they didn't want her to violate her vows. The, the, priests, the priests actually knew enough, were enlightened by God, to see that this dedication to, to virginity was from God. It was from God, except they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know what to do with it. And so um, it was through a divine revelation that the priests uh, 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 figured out a way. Well, they didn't figure it out. It was revealed to them. The way to marry, marry off, to marry off Mary, was revealed to them by an angel. Um, but the purpose that they had in marrying her off was they wanted to give her to someone who would actually help her maintain her vows, right? Her vow of virginity, of, of, of unceasing virginity. Um, so this, this shows how the Holy Spirit was operating in the souls of everyone, in particular of the priests, and how they were, they were trying to discern the correct way. Um, and so... This, of course, flies in the face of the common conception, especially the Roman Catholic conception of the Holy Family. St. Joseph was not a young man. He was an old man. He was in his 80s. Um, and uh, it was through the, the, the budding of his rod, of his walking stick, after they, they, they were instructed by an angel to call all the widow, widowers of the tribe of Judah, which is one of the 12 tribes, the royal tribe, call them to Jerusalem. And the widower whose rod, whose walking stick would bud, would be the one who would receive the Theotokos as a bride. Uh, and the priests knew that this person would help the Theotokos actually maintain her virginity. Um, so uh, the purpose of her marriage was just to protect her. Um, and so the, uh, the elder Joseph is her protector from the beginning. He understood his role as, as her protector and as a protector of her virginity. And this is why he was so shocked later when he found her pregnant. But then again, through the, the uh, intervention of an angel, as we'll read later, uh, it was revealed to him that, in fact, this child was from, was from God and was not, she, that Mary was still a virgin. Um, the last thing that I want to talk about is the new veil for the temple. The Theotokos was actually a skilled uh, weaver, and she was able to, and she was actually well known to the priests in the temple when they decided to, to weave a new veil for the temple. The Theotokos was actually chosen, and um, she was chosen to, to spin the purple um, threads. By purple, um, it's not the color purple that we know today. The purple of the ancient world is more like a mauve. Uh, uh, it's, it's more like a, a deep, deep red. It's the imperial color. This is the color that emperors wore. 
a, a deep red, not a purple, but a deep red. Um, a burgundy, that's, that's closest to the, to, to the uh, purple. Porphyry, the marble porphyry is a deep red, a burgundy. Um, of course, this is all, uh, again, connected to the prefiguration of who she is um, because the veil represented her, the spitting of the veil. Uh, there are other hymns that talk about how uh, it's through her body that her body is like a loom where the, the word of God was given covers, coverings, flesh, right? Um, and, um, and so this is connected again to her identity as the mother of God, the woman who would give flesh to God and make him visible to human beings. Um, so I think we could, I'm going to stop talking about our chapters there, but maybe we could spend a little bit of time discussing, uh, answering questions, uh, or um, making connections. Okay. If there aren't any questions, then we could we can adjourn. But before we adjourn, I'd like to wish wish everyone um, a blessed nativity, and uh, may we receive our Lord um, tomorrow night, uh, fully prepared, and when we. Take it when we commune and he comes into our body and into our soul. May we then produce the virtues that uh, bring us closer to what he told us to be holy. Oh, yeah. Did someone have a question? I think I saw someone's. Okay. All right, everyone, then have a Merry Christmas, and we will reconvene next week on, at the same time.